Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, report were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Fashion emergency hotline. Help. I got rid of all my clothes. Breathe and explain. During Fashion Week, everyone looked fantastic, so I decided I needed a new wardrobe. Well, strut to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yes, they have gorgeous floral tops and super on-trend pixie pants to turn your sidewalk into a catwalk. And right now, pixie pants are just $25. $25? Yep. Right now, pants and tops at Old Navy are 30 to 50% off. 30 to 50% off? Amazing. Thank you. Don't thank me. Thank Old Navy. Valid 915-923. Excludes denim and active pants. The paranormal, what is it? Is it the unexplained, strange events, something from beyond, or is it simply nothing more than perception? This is Paranormal Unspoken. I'm your host, Adam Young. And with us, we have our much-anticipated guest with us today, Sylvia Schultz. Sylvia Schultz has been a paranormal investigator for several years now and is an expert on Peoria State Hospital. Uh, this is one of the most haunted locations in the state of Illinois. She has written several books of paranormal nonfiction. This is including Fractured Spirits and her latest book, 44 Years in Darkness. Sylvia, welcome. Great to have you here with us today. It's wonderful to be here, Adam. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Awesome. So, Sylvia, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, well, I have always been fascinated with the paranormal. Um, I was thinking about this just the other day. I was I was at work kind of daydreaming, as, as one does at work. And I, I grew up on true ghost stories. I learned to read at a very young age, and I just filled my brain with spooky stuff, which actually turned out to be vital career preparation in a way. Um, and I realized, you know, just sitting there yesterday, that you know, the other day, thinking about it, that I'm living the dream. I really am. I get to all these ghost stories that I grew up on and loved all through my childhood and, and growing up years. Now I get to share them with other people. So that is me. That is what I do. I tell stories, and I hope that everyone enjoys them just as much as I do. So was there something uh, particular that got you interested in the paranormal that just kind of piqued it all? Well, I've always been interested in history as well. And the history and the hauntings really go hand in hand. I mean, you can't really fully understand why a place is haunted without knowing something about the background, about the history of the place. And the idea that the history and the sites that a place has seen and the things that it has experienced and the people that lived there contributed to the fact that now we can tell fun ghost stories about it, that's just fascinating to me. It really 
it's a sense of communication. That's what I really enjoy is the sense of communicating with these people that have gone before and learning their stories, learning what they have to tell us. Now, um, I was kind of uh, poking around on your website here. Um, mm-hmm. you, you grew up on the uh, Brothers Grimm uh, fairy tale story. Uh, which one of those <laughs> would you say would probably be your favorite fairy tale out of them all? Hands down, it's got to be The Wolf and the Seven Little Kids. The, okay. Um, <laughs> it's with people, people who are familiar with it, there is a mother goat with seven little kids, and she leaves them to go on an errand. And she locks them in the house, and she says, do not open the door for anyone but me. And the big bad wolf comes around. And he says, I'm your mother. Open up the door. And the kids say, no, no, you're not, my, you're not our mother. Our mother has a soft, gentle voice. So the wolf goes away, and he eats some chalk. And he comes back. And he says, well, open up the door. It's your mother. And the kids say, well, put your, put your foot under the door. And um, he puts his paw under the door, and of course it's a wolf's paw. It's not the, the um, mother's dainty little foot. And the kids freak out that the wolf busts the door down and eats all of the seven little kids, except for one who hides. And the mother goat comes home, and then the wolf runs off. And then the mother goat comes home and finds all of her kids gone, except for this one, this poor little thing that's hiding, just terrified in the corner. And she said, what happened? And, he, and the, the kid said, well, the wolf came and ate all my brothers and sisters. So they go and find the wolf, and he's sleeping because he's had such a big meal. So the wolf, the, the, uh, the mother's goat, sends the remaining little kid. She says, run home and get my sewing kit. And the kid comes back with the sewing kit, and the mother goat slices the wolf's stomach open. The other six kids jump out, and then they all fill the wolf's stomach with stones. And the mother goat, using her sewing kit, sews the wolf back up. And they all live happily ever after. The wolf wakes up, and he's so thirsty because of these stones in his stomach that he goes to the river to have a drink. And he leans over the river to take a drink, and all these stones overbalance him, and he falls in the river and drowns. It's quite the story. It made quite the impression. Yeah, that is quite the story. (laughs) That's the one that Disney never talks about. So, uh, what what brought you to investigate and, and study uh, Peoria State Hospital? Oh, well, I didn't grow up in this area. I grew up about two and a half hours north in the Chicago suburbs. So, I was raised on the ghost lore of that area. I was raised on Resurrection Mary and Archer Avenue and uh, the screaming ghost, the screaming mummy of the Field Museum, all of that sort of thing. So that's what really captured my attention at first. Then I moved down to this area around Peoria and um, started learning about the ghost lore of this area. And people kept telling me. I was working on a book of true ghost stories of the area. And people say, people kept telling me, oh, my gosh, you have to write about Peoria State Hospital. It is super, super haunted. I said, wow, Peoria State Hospital, what's that? Oh, it's a haunted mental asylum. It's just across the river in Bartonville. Wow, haunted mental asylum. That's got to be creepy and cool and awesome. 
so I started learning about it, and it was creepy and cool and awesome, but what was even better was the fact that it was haunted for all the good kind of reasons. You say haunted mental asylum, and your mind automatically goes all American Horror Story on you, and you automatically assume that there was pain and fear and abuse, and that's why the place is so haunted. And it is my deep privilege to be able to tell people that that was not the case at the Peoria State Hospital. This was a place of caring and compassion. This was an asylum, as Dr. Zeller wrote, it it was the asylum in the fine old sense of the word, in the sense that this was a place where people could go to find help. And having some place like that, so close and so haunted, (laughs) just brings me the greatest joy. And it, it is such a joy for me to be able to tell people about this place because it is haunted to the rafters and it is haunted for the very best of reasons because the spirits still want to be there. So uh, tell us about your first investigation at Peoria State Hospital. (laughs) Well, my first investigation at the Peoria State Hospital was, um, it was before I knew very much about the history of the place. So um, I was not, I was only aware of the creepiness at this point. I was not aware of the um, the legacy of compassion. So it was creepy. We were in the, the Bowen building, which is the administration building, and previously to that it was the nurse's dormitory and the nurse's college. Uh, it's, it's a great big building, stone building on the hilltop that looks like it has every right to be haunted because it's, it's gorgeous, and it's looming and creepy and spooky, and we were there after Halloween, and it was cold, and it was dark, and it was creepy, and there was no electricity, and we had to we had to use flashlights, and we were in the basement, and um, we, uh, I, was a, I was a very young investigator at that point in time, just a baby ghost hunter, and um, I've been... I'm going to make a confession here. I've been scared of the dark for most of my life. (laughs) 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 We're all in the dark. We're all in this group with flashlights. And the guide said, okay, now we're going to go lights out. And, you know, for me at that point in time, unfamiliar with the phrase as I was, that was like, okay, here's the swimming pool full of sharks. We're going to strip strip down to our skivvies and hop right in. (laughs) (laughs) idea at all. So I, I knew we were had, we had to do this. So I, I made sure that somebody I knew was standing behind me. <laughs> but I was not standing on the edge of the group where something could sneak up and tap me on the shoulder. And then uh, we turned off the flashlights. We were at one end of the hallway. And moments after we went lights out, from the other end of the hallway, where I knew no one was, I heard a very strange sound. It sounded almost like the coo of a pigeon, but you could tell there was a human voice behind it. It sounded like, and I I gasped. (laughs) And the, the guide said, are you okay? Into the darkness. And I said, yes, I'm fine, I'm fine. 
and we listened to him a while longer. Um, he did some EVP work, and uh, then turned on the flashlights a little while later, and uh, I went and found the guide after the flashlights were on, and I said, I'm sorry for spooking like that, but, but this is what I heard, and I told him, and he looked at me and said, you know what, I heard that too. <laughs> So that was my first introduction to the Peoria State Hospital. So in your investigations, do you use any uh, equipment? Um, I'm very privileged to be an author. That means that I get to play with any group that will have me, and they have all sorts of fun equipment. I've worked with spirit boxes. I love the spirit box. Oh, my goodness, do I love the spirit box. Um, that for, if, if anybody in your audience isn't familiar with it, I'm sure they are, but just in case, a spirit box is something that's set up to scroll through the AM dial where there's a lot of talk and also generate a lot of white noise. It just randomly scrolls through the dial. And the idea is that you set this up and you ask questions of the spirits and the spirits are able to use that white noise and those little snippets of sound to respond to your questions. And the first time I heard about this, I'm like, no way, call shenanigans. <laughs> there is no way that this can possibly happen. And I used it for the first time. And to ask questions and to get answers that make sense right away, it's amazing. Um, We've also used motion detectors. We, of course, we use cameras and recorders to capture evidence. And um, <laughs> one of the one of the fun things to use is um, trigger objects. Uh, I had a wonderful experience. I'll I'll just we were going to talk later about experiences at the Peoria State Hospital. I'll just mention this one real quick. Um, I was at the Pollock Hospital, which is the former tuber tuberculosis ward, also on the grounds of the asylum. And I was there with a group of three groups that had banded together, and they were all joining in this investigation. And three, no, two of the ladies that I was with that particular evening decided to make themselves into trigger objects. And since this was a hospital, Right up until the asylum closed in 1973, uh, they decided to dress in white lab coats with stethoscopes around their necks. So we went down in the Pollock Hospital, we went down into the basement, into the morgue, and we were sitting on chairs um, doing some EVP work, or uh, asking questions and recording. And I was sitting next to a, an investigator named Liz, and we're all there are four of us down there. We're sitting on chairs, kind of in a half circle. Liz was sitting next to me. We're sitting there asking these questions. All of a sudden, Liz jumps out of her chair, goose-like, like she's been goosed. Scared oh. the peace out of me because I was sitting next to her. Everyone's like, <laughs> what, what, Liz, what, 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 what's going on, what's going on? Something had taken the stethoscope off from around Liz's neck. Oh, wow. Just reached up under her hair and slid it right off. <laughs> Ooh, I think that'd make me jump, too. <laughs> yes. yes. Oh, gosh, it was amazing. 
I have been in the Pollock Hospital dozens upon dozens of times, and that investigation, it was at the beginning of July this year, I have never seen it that active. If people want to see the results of this investigation, if you've got a pen and, pa- pen and paper handy, go to YouTube or Facebook and like the group Shadow Hunters. They're the ones that have put this on. They are going to be debuting a new YouTube show, and that is going to be one of the first episodes the Peoria State Hospital. I highly suggest follow Shadow Hunters, watch this show. Your mind will be blown. It'll be excellent. Awesome. Um, so, yeah, we were talking earlier this week, and you had mentioned uh, the um, investigation you did in early July. Uh, in July. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, why don't you go ahead and uh, share that story with us? Oh, well, um, I <laughs> the, the beginning of the story happens a couple of years ago. Um, I quite often give presentations on the history and hauntings of the Peoria State Hospital. And I was invited to give a presentation at the Chicago Ghost Conference uh, two two years ago. There was somebody in the audience named Nick Starlow, and he was the lead investigator for Shadow Shadow Hunters. Still is, as a matter of fact. He and his group were so compelled by this story of this haunted mental asylum, they vowed to themselves, we have got visit this place. (laughs) It sounds amazing. So earlier this year, Nick got in touch with me, and uh, he he said, please, be our native guide. (laughs) We're coming down to this hospital, and we want you to be a part of this filming that we're doing for for this YouTube show. And of course, I jumped at the chance. And he and two other groups, Shadow Hunters and two other groups, uh, came they, they they did a paranormal road trip and they visited several haunted sites over the week over the course of the week and they ended up in Bartonville for Friday and Saturday so we got to spend two exciting fantastic evidence filled evenings at the Pollock Hospital at the tuberculosis ward of the asylum and oh we had so much fun and every member of these three groups, they knew how to laugh and have fun and enjoy themselves. But they were also, when it came time to gather evidence, they were absolutely professional in their evidence gathering, in their techniques. So when you watch this show, I can guarantee you that everything you're seeing is how it happened. They have not messed with the evidence at all. That's what happened. That's what we experienced, and it was brilliant. I'm not going to say anything more because I don't want to spoil the 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 the, um, the um, experience we had in the basement with a stethoscope that did not get caught on tape, unfortunately. So that's why I shared it. But everything else, you're going to have to watch the show. <laughs> right. I won't spoil anything else for you. But yeah, watch Shadow Hunter's show on the Peoria State Hospital. So, um, I just lost my train of thought here. Um, so you had an amazing opportunity to uh, be on Sci-Fi's uh, Ghost Hunters, is that correct? Yes, yes, I did, and it was an amazing opportunity, and I really enjoyed 
the opportunity. Um, I, I stood, well, the building they investigated was the Bowen building, and they also uh, they also did some investigation in Cemetery 2 on the grounds, which is where Bookbinder's grave is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what they did was um, they interviewed me, they, they did their investigation throughout the week, and they interviewed me on Friday of that week. Um, they stood me in front of the Bowen building, so they had that lovely backdrop. And I talked to them for, oh, a good half an hour, telling them the history of the place and some of the stories that I had heard at that point in time. And they ended up using about 45 seconds. <laughs> so, Lincoln, you'll miss me, but, but I got to say I was on Ghost Hunters, so that was pretty cool. <laughs> so, also, um, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I, I was going to say, I was also interviewed by Ghost Asylum prior to their investigation at the Bowen building. Um, and they, <laughs> this, this is going to be even more of a letdown than the previous story because they, they interviewed me on the phone for 40 minutes or so and then ended up using absolutely nothing of what I told them about Rhoda Derry and the Peoria State Hospital. So that was kind of a wash, but um, but I got to help out with a, another major TV presentation, so... So that was good. So uh, what other uh, paranormal experiences have you had there? Oh, wow. Um, uh, well, I was in the basement of the Pollock Hospital. That's where I do most of the investigation that I do there is in the Pollock Hospital and in the, the three cemeteries. So... Um, as I said, being an author, I get to play with any group that'll have me. And the um, the building had been rented that night by a group called Peoria Paranormal. And I didn't know anybody in the group. And they had opened up the building to the public so that the public could come in and see what a, um, an investigation was like. So I absolutely didn't know any member of the public either. All I knew were the volunteers at the building. So a group of us went down to the morgue to investigate, and we realized that, oh, boy, hey, there's a group already here. So we said, we'll let you guys stay here, and we'll go upstairs to the women's ward. Now, I have this thing where I really don't like being the last person out of the dark room that I know is haunted. (laughs) So I made sure there, there was somebody behind me as I was coming out of the haunted morgue and through the storage room and up the stairs. Now, this investigation took place at the end of March, so it was still pretty chilly in the building. So the person that was behind me uh, was wearing, uh, she, she was wearing a blue puppy ski jacket, and she had straight blonde hair that was about shoulder length, you know, and I could, I could see her perfectly well. I just thought she was a member of the public. And, um, there's a big heavy metal door at the top of the basement stairs. And I stopped and held the door for this person that was behind me. And there wasn't anybody behind me on the stairs. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the neat thing about the book, Fractured Spirits, 
is that if you're looking, if you're reading through the book, and you come across a little cartoon ghost in the margins of the book, that's your signal that there's extra stuff on the internet. I did okay. a lot of recording, uh, caught a lot of EVPs, did a lot of recording. You can hear my reaction <laughs> to that incident <laughs> if you go to either the Fractured Spirits fan page on Facebook or soviashalt.com. You can listen to those recordings, and that's one of the recordings. <laughs> you can hear me coming up the stairs and turning around and going, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was actually uh, looking through some of those EVPs, and uh, I believe it was at the, the Pollock Hospital that it was taken at. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, I, yeah, I was listening to one of the EVPs where um, they were asking, you know, is there somebody in here with us? And there's, is there somebody in here with us? I know which us? one you're and, talking about. Yeah. Yeah, and clear as day, right towards the end, you hear that like a like a, a girl's voice, a young girl say, saying, "I'm yeah, here." I'm here. And then a little fainter, you hear a man's voice saying, "Get back." Mm-hmm. And that we had a lot of discussion about that EVP when we first captured it, and and in the years since. We thought, oh my goodness, why is there a child here? And then what sounds like a parent, what sounds like a father figure saying, get back. Why Why is that? Why did we capture that combination? Um, tuberculosis is a very virulent disease. It goes through families like wildfire. And the Pollock Hospital was purpose-built to be a TB ward. And families were admitted, and families did pass away in the hospital. Um, so it would not be at all out of place in that hospital to find, you know, a curious little child ghost, and then, you know, a father warning his little girl not to talk to the strangers. <laughs> right, right. So, okay. Very. Well, we'll be back here on uh, Paranormal Unspoken. Uh, next segment, we're going to be talking about uh, kind of the history, a little bit more about the history of Freer Estate Hospital and what made it unique. So stick with us.
We're back on Paranormal Unspoken with our guest, Sylvia Schultz, talking about Peoria State Hospital. Uh, Sylvia, I'll let you take it over from here. All right. You know, the interesting thing about the Peoria State Hospital and that corner of Bartonville is that it is a perfect storm of things that will cause a place to be haunted. First of all, you've got a lot of limestone in the area. Um, 300 million years ago, this part of the United States was covered by a shallow, warm inland sea. Lots of little creatures floating around in it. And when the glaciers came from the north and sucked up all that water, all those little sea creatures were, you know, fell to the bottom of the floor or the seafloor and got compressed into what we now call limestone. And there is a theory in paranormal circles that since limestone is created from the calcified skeletons of all these tiny little sea creatures, since it's, the matrix is something that was once alive, it's a very great attractor of psychic energy. A lot of light anomalies are captured in a place that's high in limestone, a lot of sound anomalies. <clears throat> so it does tend to attract psychic energy. And there's a lot of limestone in this area. Um, the high school is called Limestone High School. And um, the Bowen Building, which I mentioned earlier, is made of limestone. It's not local stone, but it's from the oldest quarry in the United States, in New Bedford, Indiana. Hmm. There's also a lot of running water on the hilltop. The hilltop is just crisscrossed with these ravines and underground streams. And just several hundred yards away from the bluff top, you've got the Illinois River, which is the longest river in the state. And if you actually go down into the basement in the Pollock Hospital, into the morgue, you're actually, that concrete floor is poured over three feet of a natural spring. That cool spring water helps to keep that room cool for body storage. So they were not only not only using it for, for water, they were also using it as a cooling mechanism, too. So you've got the limestone. You've got the running water. The bluff top overlooking the river is a perfect place for human habitation and has been for hundreds and thousands of years. I spoke with somebody at one of my presentations that likes to go poking along the riverbank looking for artifacts, and he found the bones of some sort of deer or some sort of ungulate animal, um, and he cleaned it up and took it to the museum down in Springfield, and they identified it as a deer bone, and it had tool marks on it, and they hmm. dated tool marks. 10,000 B.C. Wow. Yeah. So there has been a human presence on that hilltop for centuries. Um, I mean, you can you can see for miles up and down the river from that bluff, so it's a really great place for human habitation. So there's been a Native American presence for centuries. Um, so you've got that going on. And investigators have actually captured the sound of Native American drumming up there. It has nothing whatsoever to do with the asylum, but it's a remnant of even farther back. 
When the asylum closed in 1973, the state of Illinois just locked the doors and walked away. All of these buildings were just left as they were. There were a lot of cottages. That's where the patients lived. And when I say cottages, you're thinking of this tiny little cute little cottage. <laughs> but these were really the size of McMansions. They were designed to house dozens of patients. So these aren't really suitable for single-family use, of course, but they weren't really adaptable for any sort of industrial use. The city of Bartonville tried and tried and tried to sell these buildings, but they didn't have any takers, partially because it was kind of hard to retrofit them, and also because of the stigma of mental illness. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with these buildings. So in the end, a lot of these buildings just got knocked down. They fell to the wrecking ball. There were 63 buildings on the hilltop. 13 of the buildings are left. So when the wrecking ball came to these cottages, they just knocked the walls down with everything still inside and just dropped the rubble into the basement and then paved it over. And any rubble that was on top, they scooped up by the dump truck fulls and dumped it into the ravine. And there, that was over 40 years ago. And there are still places in those ravines where you can't take two steps without stepping on broken crockery. Okay. And people have found people's belongings, <laughs> artifacts that belong to these people who once lived there in these ravines. Uh, I, was, I was talking with somebody at the Pollock Hospital, yet again, that um, they found a makeup compact in the ravines. And they unscrewed the lid, and the powder puff was still in there. And they lifted the puff, and there was powder underneath. And she took the powder puff and powdered her nose a bit, and her friend said, Oh my God, what are you doing? They're probably a TV drums on. Put that down. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, these artifacts are still there, and these spirits are still drawn to these artifacts because these personal items are all still there. But what really seals the deal for a lot of investigators is the fact that. The Peoria State Hospital was unlike any other place in the country that treated the mentally ill. These spirits still hang around because they want to be there. They were cared for. They were loved like family. So that is a powerful draw for somebody to stick around. <laughs> I talked with one of the guides at the Peoria State Hospital. Um, Chris Morris, and she was doing a, a hayrack tour around the cemetery. And somebody asked, he said, if these people were so well treated, you know, why is this place so incredibly haunted? Why are there so many spirits around? And before Chris could even answer with the, the answer that I just gave you, because they were well treated, they choose to stick around, this guy goes, why is it so haunted? Before Chris could even answer, on the recorder, you hear a young girl's voice say, they're just so nice here. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, here's a question. It's kind of dating back to our last segment just because I missed this question, and I, I just kind of want to get a little bit more of a clarification on it. 
Uh, during your investigations, do you find that these that the hauntings there uh, is it like an intelligent activity, or is it more residual, oh. or is it both? <laughs> There's not a lot of residual haunting there. It's mostly intelligence. It mm. truly, honestly is. Um, we'll we'll talk about Rhoda Derry later on in the broadcast. Um, her, I, I I spoke with an investigator um, who really is close to Rhoda. She she likes him very much. Um, and he wandered down to Cemetery One, where Rhoda is buried. And he caught on his recorder, he, he caught somebody saying, come on down and sit a while, Jane. Hmm. And a lot of these EVPs that we catch are, they're, they're reacting to somebody's presence there. Um, I have a delightful story, <laughs> yet again at the Pollock Hospital. Uh, somebody shared this story with me. I was not present for this, but... Um, a fellow was there on an investigation, and he was there with his wife and his mother-in-law, who were both sensitive. And the mother-in-law kept saying, oh, my goodness, there are so many children here. This is amazing. Look at all the kids running around. And, of course, this guy couldn't see anything at all. But he's wandering around. I think he was in the women's ward. And um, he had his recorder going. And uh, he caught something out of the corner of his eye flash past one of the windows. And he said aloud, kind of to himself, he's like, did I just see something in that window there? And on his recorder, you hear a child's voice saying, yep, you sure did. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Pira State Hospital, how did it get its start? Well... It got its start in the late 18th century, or late 19th century, rather, late 1800s. Um, the 19th century was the era of of poorhouses and almshouses. These almshouses were a place for poor people to stay, but they were not equipped to care for the mentally ill. But it's a sad fact of life that the mentally ill... Poor people go crazy, too. (laughs) There are poor people that suffer from mental illness as well. And they had no resources at all. There were asylums. There were private asylums. There were state hospitals. Afford a private asylum. Or if you could not, if you used up your time in a state hospital. Because state hospitals only accepted people for two years at a time. They figured that if you weren't better in two years, you were just released as incurable, and somebody else could have that bed that you were sleeping in. They were trying to help as many people as possible. Um, so instead of having somebody taking up a bed for 40 years, they were just like, all right, two years, you've had your chance. You can't be cured. You have to leave. So these other these people that could not afford an asylum had overstayed their welcome at the state hospitals were in the almshouses. The Women's Club of Bartonville was led by Mrs. Barton, the mayor's wife. And they took a tour of some of the almshouses in Illinois, and they saw some of the frightful conditions. Some of them weren't too bad, but some of them were really wretched. And like I said, none of these places were equipped to care for the mentally ill. 
to the Women's Club of Bartonville said, you know what, we need a state hospital in this area, donated the land on which the asylum sits. So any money that the, the, the asylum received from the state could all go into the buildings and the equipment and the landscaping and the gardens. So all of this, this was state-of-the-art for the beginning of the 20th century. It was really a magnificent place. And the Women's Club tapped Dr. George Zeller to be the first superintendent. Um, he was not trained as a psychiatrist. He was trained as a physician, as a surgeon. When the asylum actually opened, he was in the Philippines serving in the Spanish-American War. He didn't actually take superintendency of the asylum until he got back into the States. Now, Dr. Zeller had very firm opinions on how the mentally ill should be treated. He knew nothing about psychiatry except what he read in textbooks in preparation for taking this job. But he had been raised right. He was raised with a mother who was very tender-hearted, died very young. George never forgot her. And he was raised to treat people with kindness. And he said, that's how I'm going to run my asylum. Sorry, I'm choking up here. <laughs> no problem. Uh, um, and he decided that going to be an asylum like no other in the United States. First of all, it is the it, it was the only asylum that was designed for long-term care. He said, if somebody comes to us too broken to fix, there's a place for them. We will care for them as long as it takes. Yeah, and I just want to re oh, sorry. Um, I yeah. just want to kind of fill in a little bit about that era. Uh, back then, uh, when uh, Peoria was, was, or I should say Peoria, but uh, when these almhouses were around, there were no, no public assistance uh, for those that are suffering in hard times and things like that. Right. So these almhouses, uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, sounds like it was kind of a dumping site for, for these people who either one couldn't take care of themselves or had an il illness and couldn't afford the, the care that uh, they needed. That's exactly right. Um, at the beginning of Illinois' history, uh, Illinois became a state in 1818. At the, at the beginning of the history of Illinois, poor people were kind of farmed out to families that cared for them. And later on, in the middle of the 19th century, they started, um, they, they started putting together these almshouses. So poor people were not under the care of one certain family. They could go to the county almshouse and apply to live there. But it was a safety net for the poor. It was not a safety net for the mentally ill. So, yeah, the Peoria State Hospital, it, it, it didn't start out with the, as the Peoria State Hospital. The first name for it was the Illinois General Hospital for the Incurable Insane. And Dr. Zeller went in front of the state legislature and said, do not tell my patients they're incurable. That's what I'm here to do. He made them change the name to the Peoria State Hospital. He firmly yeah. believed that there was no patient that was incurable. He felt that he had a mandate to go out and fix people. <laughs> 
And how do you do that? You go out to the almshouses and you find the worst of the worst cases and you bring them to the Peoria State Hospital and you care for them. Yeah, so talking about Dr. Uh, George Zeller, uh, what propelled him into a life of medicine? Well, his father was a doctor and he followed in his father's footsteps. He didn't get the best grades at school. <laughs> But he kind of pulled it together after he graduated, and he had his own practice in Peoria for a while. Um, then he felt the call to enter the Army and serve in the, in the Spanish-American War. He was friends with Teddy Roosevelt, as a matter of fact. Um, and when he, when he was about to leave for the Philippines, he was contacted by the Peoria, by the um, Martinsville Women's Group, the women's club there. And um, they asked him very nicely if he would consider taking the superintendency. And he and his wife, Sophie, cared very deeply for these unfortunate people. They considered the patients to be their family. They never had children of their own. They considered the asylum patients their children. So they were just perfect people to be in charge of this asylum in its, in its infant years. There's a uh, wonderful so story about, yeah, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. There's a, there's a wonderful story about um, in 1915, I believe this happened, there was a storm in the area that knocked out the power. The, the, the asylum had its own powerhouse, but the storm was so bad it knocked out the power to the hilltop. And Sophie Zeller stood at her stove and made pot after pot after pot of hot coffee for the nurses to take around to all of the uh, cottages so that her patients, that her children could have hot coffee to drink during this cold, nasty storm. So um, can you tell us about the special committee that uh, Dr. George Seller uh, met with and why he was there? Was he attempting uh, to accomplish something? Yeah. Um, I believe what you're referring to is the um, the committee for uh, it met in Washington D.C. and it was basically yeah. a committee that was trying to uh, trying to see the conditions in almshouses throughout the United States. So they called superintendents from several of the state hospitals um, to find out what the conditions were, what were conditions like. They, they wanted to get a handle on that. Um, so Dr. Zeller was one of these superintendents they called to testify before this committee, House of Representatives. And they were absolutely astounded at the way this asylum was being run. Um, I found this testimony, and I was so fascinated by the straightforward way that Dr. Zeller talked about the running of this asylum and the pride he took in describing these people who, they're representatives, they're government folks, they, they're politicians, they have no idea how the mental health is. And he was taking pleasure in blowing their minds <laughs> by talking to them about the care that they that these Yeah, he had like a sense of pride. Yeah. <laughs> so I was so moved by this testimony that 
I use it as the first chapter in 44 Years in Darkness, because he does mention Rhoda Derry in that testimony. Yes, he she does. comes up in the testimony. And that testimony is word for word what he said and what these representatives said. It, the, the dialogue in that first chapter is word for word what was said. I could not improve upon Dr. Zeller's words. <laughs> the, the, the background and the scene setting is, is my own words, but the dialogue is straight out of that testimonial. Yes. So, uh, as you mentioned, Imperia opened its doors. Um, Dr. Zeller was not there, and there was uh, another uh, kind of like an acting superintendent at the time. Yes. But when Dr. Zeller came back to uh, take up his role as a superintendent, uh, he found something about the building and the way that was ran that just really upset him. Could you, could you tell us a little bit more about that? You are absolutely right, Adam. He did find something that that grated on his nerves terribly. He gave instructions for how he wanted the asylum to be designed. Before he left, before Dr. Zeller left for the Philippines, he toured the big building that had been built. Um, there are two theories of asylum construction. One is to build a great big building called the Kirkbride Building after the architect who designed it. Um, it's a big central building with wings off of each side for male ward and female ward. The idea of this is that the superintendent and his wife can go around and visit every patient every day. That quickly becomes, it, the more your population grows, the more that becomes unsustainable. The other problem with the Kirkbride building is that you have people with different ailments housed in the same room. So you could have somebody simply, simply suffering from depression housed with a raving schizophrenic, which is not good for either one of them. The cottage system is the other way to design an asylum. And Dr. Zeller was very interested in cottage systems. In this system, each cottage is devoted to the treatment of a certain ailment. Alcoholics are together. Epileptics are together. Schizophrenics are together. That way there's a buddy system going on. If you are feeling down, there's somebody there. Your roommate will understand what you're talking about. So Dr. Zeller wanted it to be on the cottage system. They built a Kirkbride building to start off with in 1898. Dr. Zeller toured this with the members of the women's club and said, tear it down. There was not a single patient that ever set foot in that Kirkbride building at the Peoria State Hospital because the ventilation was poor, foundation was already starting to crack. Dr. Zeller took one look at it and said, no, take it down, reuse the blocks. This is insufficient. This is, this is not suitable for human habitation. It came out later that the guy who had the contract to build that first building had ties to the Chicago Mafia. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. They built it on top of a coal mine and didn't, didn't check out the foundation very well, shoddy materials, and, yeah, it started falling apart as soon as it was built. <laughs> so 
So it was dismantled, and the stones from that were used to build the Bowen Building. So while Dr. Zeller was off in the Philippines, cottages and a couple of the hospitals and the administration building, that what they called the employees building first off. But they built them according to asylum design of the day, which means that they put bars on the windows, and they had doors that locked. Dr. Zeller came back, and he took his place as superintendent, and the first thing he did was order all the bars to be removed from the windows. He said, do not shut my patients in. They've come to us for help. Why are we locking them in like this? This is They don't lock their doors at home. Every cottage was unlocked except for the violent wards for the males and the females. That was, those were the only cottages that were locked. Every other cottage was left unlocked. The windows were left open a couple inches so that the patients could see. If they want to walk out, they're free to do so. So, yeah, I, dur- during the... Uh Dr. Zeller's testimony, just kind of ranging back to the special committee, uh, mm-hmm. they asked him how many failed escapes uh, have <laughs> they had there. <laughs> and yeah, he thought yeah. that was, we have people go walking all the time. <laughs> yeah, so, and, and this this question struck awe to Dr. Zeller. Yeah, uh, he's like, yeah, people, people wander off all the time. We don't think anything of it. Um, another component of Dr. Zeller's philosophy was he wanted women to be in charge. He was very conscious of the empowerment of women. From 1902 when it opened to 1938 when Dr. Zeller passed away, those 36 years, his nurses college was the finest nurses college in the United States for those 36 years. He encouraged his nurses to go on to become doctors in their own right. And he put a married couple in charge of each cottage, like um, like a, a house mom <laughs> or right. a fraternity or a sorority. Um, and he made sure that all of his attendants were female. That was part of what was blowing the committee's minds. They're like, you have females in charge of everyone? And he's like, yeah. He said that the, the soft, gentle touch of a woman is much more effective with the mentally ill than the hard hand of a man is. And when people would go, would wander away, you know, the, the Peoria police would pick them up, take them down to the station, they call the asylum, they say, hey, we've got one of your patients here. They would send a nurse on the trolley to go retrieve this patient. And she would put his hand, put her hand on the patient's elbow and say, come on, time to go home. And the patient would follow. The patient would go along. That is actually, veering back to the hauntings just for a tiny little bit, that is one of the touches that you might experience at the Peoria State Hospital. If you're wandering in a place where you're not supposed to be, you might feel a gentle touch on your elbow. And if you stay there long enough, you might feel a gentle but firmer touch on your shoulder, somebody trying to lead you away from that place. 
And that's one of the nurses saying, you know, you're not supposed to be in this area. Let's get you back to where you're supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, going along with doc- the doctor's philosophy uh, on the mentally ill, too, is that uh, he did away with restraints as well. He did, yes. Complete non-restraints. He was very adamant about that. Um, there was he, – he was not the first – psychiatrist to say he was not the first superintendent of an asylum to say wouldn't it be nice not to have to put our patients in straitjackets um, there's Dr. Andrew McFarland who is in charge of the Jacksonville the, the hospital of Jacksonville the Illinois State Hospital of Jacksonville he said 90% of our patients don't need restraints but it was that weekly 10% that they kept the straitjackets around for Dr. Zeller 50 years later did away with all of them. He was adamant that no restraints would be used in his asylum. No straitjackets, no handcuffs, no straight gowns, no um, no no foot cuffs, nothing. He the only reason he kept any of these straitjackets and implements like that was he had a, a small room next to his office and he kept all the straitjackets in there for his staff to point to and say, never again, not here, not at this asylum. It's not going to happen. And he, the reason he was so adamant about that was he realized that if, if you're holding on to a struggling patient, if the, if the patient is wrapped up in a straitjacket, he or she is still going to struggle, and you're not going to know that moment of surrender. Because canvas and iron straps, they can't feel. But if you have your hand on a struggling patient, you can tell through that sense of touch immediately when that patient stops struggling. You can feel that moment of surrender, and you can, you can start backing off. Okay, we don't have to hold you quite so tightly now because you're calming down. Yes, and uh, there was a saying that he and his wife had uh, that, that you state in the book, and it really, uh, really touched me. And that saying was, trees in winter. Trees in winter. <laughs> yeah, I, I came across that, and I was so touched by that. Um, theory behind trees in winter is that these people are forgotten by society sometimes. Sometimes they have families, but sometimes they're just forgotten. They may be gaunt, skeletal, they may not look pretty, but they're still alive. They're like trees in winter that have lost all their leaves, but the, the sap, the core, the life of the tree is still there and should still be honored. Yes, yes. Dr. Zeller sounds to be an incredible man that was well before his time. Oh, yes. Do you feel that he, back then, do you feel that he gets the the credit that he deserves? I think so. He was admired all over the world. Um, And he was admired even after he retired from the asylum, from the superintendency. He's admired today. There was uh, a mental health institution in Peoria that called itself the Zeller Zone in honor of him. (laughs) 
and he retired and you know he died in 1968 or 1938 rather and this you know together in the 1980s and his memory was still so fresh in everyone's mind that they honored him by naming the Zeller Center after him um, there's a wonderful story and this one makes me choke up too <laughs> but after Dr. Zeller retired there was a Mr. Bowen for whom the Bowen building is named um, who worked at the asylum and he was, he was one of the higher-ups in the, the hierarchy of the asylum administration. And the, the employee's building, which is now called the Bowen Building, was the nurses' classrooms and the nurses' apartments, the nurses' um, dormitory rooms. And the third floor was other apartments. Um, they were available for if somebody came in from out of town to visit their relatives, in the asylum, they were allowed to stay in the apartments for the weekend or whatever. Those apartments were also for the use of the doctors. And when Dr. Zeller retired, Mr. Bowen came to him and said, you know, we would really like it if you and Sophie would move into one of the apartments in the employees building on the third floor. And Dr. Zeller kind of brushed him off. And then during this second conversation, it took two conversations for this to sink in, during the second conversation, Mr. Bowen said again, you know, we'd really love it if you and Sophie would move in to this apartment. And Dr. Zeller stopped in his tracks and he said, let me get this straight. You want me to live on the grounds. You want me to stay here. You want me to live in this apartment here. And Dr. Bowen said, yeah, we like having you around. <laughs> we think you're great. We want you around. And this military man with this ramrod straight bearing, this fierce, bushy mustache, this fierce military man broke down in tears at the thought that he was wanted. Hmm. And he and Sophie spent the rest of their days in the apartment in the Bowen building. So yes, he was revered. He is still revered. <laughs> yes, yes, I agree. Okay, after the break, we will be talking about Sylvia's book, Fractured Spirit. More to come on Paranormal Unfocused. Thank you. 
we're back on Paranormal Unspoken uh, with our guest, Sylvia uh, Schultz. We're talking about the Paranormal State Hospital. Uh, Sylvia, tell us about your book, Fractured Spirits, and the story behind it, and kind of what inspired you to write it. Well, Fractured Spirits started out as a collection of people's experiences. Um I was actually at a book signing, um, and I was talking with the, I I was at a bookstore, and I was talking with the manager of the bookstore, we met uh, kind of a down, a a lull in the signing, and she said, we were talking about the Peoria State Hospital, and she said, you know, there, there have been two books written about the history of the Peoria State Hospital, I said, yes, I know, I've read them both, I'm familiar with it. And she said, we can't keep them on the shelves. We ordered them a hundred at a time, and they just fly off the shelves because people are so fascinated with this place. And I said, yeah, and every book of ghost stories about central Illinois will mention Barton Villas being a very haunted place. And she said, yes, I've noticed that too. And through our conversation, we realized that nobody had gone through and collected all these stories and put them in one place. And she said, you should write that book. And I said, by God, I will. (laughs) (laughs) So I did. That's what I started doing. I started, this was at the point in time where the Bowen building was still holding tours. And I just showed up and said, hey, I'm working on this book. I'm interested in collecting people's experiences. And if you guys are doing tours, can I just hang out and and can people just talk to me? Can people just tell me stories? And the more I did that, the more people came forward because people have been having experiences here even before the place closed in 1973. So I had decades worth of stories that people shared with me and they were very, very kind. Um... And then I started learning about the history of the place and Dr. Zeller and Sophie and all the nurses. And I realized that there's so much more to this than simple ghost stories. This is such an amazing place. I am so privileged to be able to write this book. This was great. Uh, so that's how it evolved from a simple book of ghost stories to a look at why this place is so incredibly haunted and the history behind the hauntings. And I must tell you that Fractured Spirits is not my title. My husband came up with that title, and I think it's just perfect. And he also, I now whenever I'm working on a new book, I say, I need a title for this book that I'm working on. This is what it's about. Give me a title. <laughs> because he's so much more brilliant at coming up with titles than I am. <laughs> uh, he was the one who came up with 44 Years in Darkness, too, for which I am eternally grateful. I love my husband for so many reasons, but, boy, that's um, up in the top five. Is he is brilliant at thinking up titles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what are some of the stories that the, the, the former nurses tell about the hospital? Oh, boy. Huh. Well, well, we'll start we'll start with the sad one first. Um, okay. The, the Peoria State Hospital was 
really brilliant in patient care for most of its history. Um, but in the mid-1960s, we'll go back to the history for just a little bit. In the mid-1960s, there was, um, they decided to do a big remodel of the entire campus. And to do that, they asked the state for money. And the, the state of Illinois said, yeah, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll crunch the money for this big remodel. But what they did was um, they kind of, that was the beginning of the downfall of the Peoria State Hospital. Um, they, what the state realized in looking at the asylum, taking a closer look at it, was that it was the highest rate of cure of any asylum in the United States, but it was also the most expensive. Mm -hmm. So for whatever reason, whatever misguided reason, the state of Illinois started cutting funding after giving this, the asylum the money for this big remodel. So instead of a nurse to every two patients, you had a nurse to every five patients, and then one nurse to every 10 patients, and then one nurse to every 50 patients. And that's when there are a lot of people in this area that have a really negative opinion of the Peoria State Hospital because that's all they know is the very last years when the funding was non-existent and um, there were there were several deaths at the Peoria State Hospital patient deaths that um, led to an investigation which led to the asylum's closing. Um, there were three patient deaths. Two of them were patient-on-patient -patient violence because there were not enough attendants to keep watch over the patients. And a couple were beaten to death by other patients. Um, there was also the very tragic case of the other way that they were trying to save money was that the asylum hired um, something called limited license physicians to save money. In addition to cutting the staff, they were forced to hire these limited license physicians. Most of them were, surprisingly enough, from the Philippines. And they got into doctoring because of Dr. Zeller. They came to the Peoria State Hospital because of Dr. Zeller's influence. You know, 75 years later, <laughs> he was still that much of an influence. But a lot of them didn't know English very well. They only had enough English to be able to pass their boards. That's the reason for the limited license. So they didn't, they weren't able to connect, to communicate with their patients very well. And some poor fellow rolled up a ball of tinfoil and stuck it into his ear and it became infected and he wasn't able to tell his doctor that because his doctor didn't know English very well and the infection the ear infection led to meningitis mm -hmm. and he died from it so patient deaths led to an investigation by the state led to the asylums closing they're like you know what conditions here are too bad we're, we're going to have to close it and I have spoken to many nurses at my presentations who've come up to me afterwards and have said, I'm one of those nurses. I'm one of those nurses that marched on Springfield and picketed and said, please don't close our asylum. These people need us. 
but the asylum closed anyway in 1973. What a great loss that was. It was. It was a devastating loss. And most of the patients that were left at the time of the asylum's closing were geriatric patients. So they were farmed out. Some of them went to the Galesburg Mental Health Center. Uh, Some of them went to nursing homes in Pekin. And a couple of them went to nursing homes in Bloomington, which is... It's about an hour away from Bartonville. And I have a friend, a dear friend, Chris Morris, I mentioned earlier. She has mm-hmm. been running around the hilltop for since she was a kid. And in high school, she would run around the buildings and everything. And the police would pick her up, and they were finally like, oh, it's you. <laughs> we know you. <laughs> <laughs> so she got to be friends with some of the policemen on the Bartonville force. And mm-hmm. one of the policemen unfolded enough to tell her a story. He said, yeah, shortly after the asylum's closing, I was doing my rounds. This is when the cottages were still standing. And he said, I saw this person sitting on one of the steps of the cottages. And he said, I got closer and found that it was a woman, an old elderly woman. And I saw that she didn't have any shoes on. And I'm like, oh, okay, what's going on? And he goes, I, I, I went up to this woman and asked her her name. She told me her name. And she said, why won't they let me in? This is my home. I'm sitting on the porch of my home, but nobody's letting me in. Why won't anyone let me in? It turns out that this was one of the patients that walked back from Bloomington to Bartonville, an hour away by car, walked back. Somewhere along the way, she lost her shoes, and she was sitting on the steps of her cottage after the asylum closed, wondering why no one would let her in. So, yeah, those, those are the stories I hear sometimes after my presentations, and, and we both cry. But, wow. Um, yeah. But um, some, of the, some, of the, some of the nurses' stories are, are much more pleasant than that. Um, we have the diary of a nurse from, oh, gosh, when was it? 1936, I think it was. And she writes about her very first days as a student there. <laughs> and that's some fascinating reading. And then there's, we also are very fortunate to have other diaries of nurses. And one of them, they were supposed to visit every ward every day, and they did rotations so that they had experience with every single ward. And they kept a record of all these patients that they talked to. And one female patient, the nurse recorded in her diary, one female patient, she would only say one thing. She only had one thing to say, and she kept repeating it. She would say, my mother is dead, my brother is dead, this is a nut house, and I am a hero. That was the only thing this patient ever said. <laughs> that was her entire statement to the world. <laughs> so what are some of those memories that are shared by by uh, ordinary people or relatives of, of the patients that have been there? Oh, see, this is the great part about something so local. It's so fresh still in the minds of the people that live here. Um the patient, the, the, the asylum was open to visitors at any time. They were completely transparent. Newspaper reporters were invited any time they liked. 
because the asylum knew they had nothing to hide. Board of Trustees, come in any time you like, whatever. Visiting hours for the patients were, it was popular to go and visit your loved one in the asylum on Sunday afternoons. And if the weather was nice, if your, if your relative was geriatric or bed-bound, you could go to their room and, and visit with them. But if they were ambulatory at all, they were brought out to see you. And in nice weather, all those meetings, those family gatherings, took place on the front lawn of the Bowen Building. It's this lush, beautiful landscape. And at one time, there was a pond in front of the building, and that got turned into a sunken garden eventually. Um, and so the Bowen Building forms the backdrop to so many of these family reunions. Um, and people have shared with me memories of going to visit their their, their family members in the asylum. And uh, this one woman was just laughing as she was telling me this. Before the mid-1960s, when they did away with patients working, they uh, every patient had a job to do. And this woman's relative, her, her Uncle Bob or whatever, was working in the kitchen. And he had been put in for, oh, violence toward his family or something. His, his mental illness involved violence towards people. And he was put in the kitchen, and they, his family came in to see him. And he said, look, look what I get to take care of. And he pushed this curtain, this green curtain aside, and there were racks upon racks of eggs that had been collected from the um, from the chicken coops that were attached to every cottage. And this woman is laughing as she's telling me this. She's like, Uncle Bob was such a violent person, and what do they do? They put him in charge of the eggs. <laughs> <laughs> they trusted him enough with these fragile eggs. So, yeah, it's just delightful. These stories are just delightful. They, uh, somebody was somebody, somebody was telling me about um, he was on a softball team, and they they did exhibition games and whatnot. And one of the exhibition games they played was at the Peoria State Hospital. And all of the the inmates came out to watch the game. And one inmate decided to ride a bicycle right through center field. And oh, it just was cool. a good night. Every, nobody cared. It was great. They were having fun. Um, the Barnum and Bailey Circus came to Peoria one year, and the asylum got a group of patients together and took them out to the circus. And the people who put the circus on were so impressed with the quiet behavior of these patients that for the next several years, the circus came and set up not in Peoria, but on the grounds of the Peoria State Hospital in Bartonville. That's so cool. Uh, I'm just going to move kind of right along because we're, we're starting to run out of time, and I really, really, really want to get to the story. Um, in your newest book, uh, 44 Years in Darkness, uh, which is set yeah. to release on October 10th, mm -hmm. um, it's a story about a, a patient at Peoria State Hospital. Uh, will you share that story with us? Absolutely. The story of Rhoda Derry is at once one of the great failures of mental health care in Illinois. 
and it's one of the great success stories of the Peoria State Hospital. Rhoda was um, born in 1834. She was a farmer's daughter. She grew up in Adams County, Illinois, south of here. She was the youngest of nine children. Beautiful, beautiful young girl. When she was 16 years old, she fell in love with the son of a neighboring farm family, Charles Phoenix. We don't know how far Charles and Rhoda's relationship went, but we do know that after a couple of years of courting, Charles asked Rhoda to marry him, and she said yes. Now, as I said, Rhoda was the youngest of nine children. Her parents were probably thrilled that she had found someone to fall in love with and marry. Charles, on the other hand, was the oldest son of four children. He was the second child, but he was the oldest son. Two boys, two girls. The, the dairies were very, very poor. They never really had a farm to call their own. They were not landowners. In fact, they spent a lot of time living with other families. The Phoenixes, on the other hand, were very well off. And Charles stood to inherit his father's land. Mrs. Phoenix, Nancy Phoenix, Charles's mother, was absolutely against this relationship. She was like, I am not having my baby boy marry one of these dirt poor dairies and have a bunch of freeloading in-laws for the rest of our lives. It's not going to happen. So she accosted Rhoda on the street, and she said, if you do not release my son from this engagement, I will curse you. Now, talking about witchcraft in front of Rhoda Dairy really would have gotten her attention quickly. Rhoda's grandmother, Mal Dairy, was known as the fortune teller of the revolution. She actually came over from Germany with her husband, fought alongside him in the Revolutionary War, dressed as a man. They switched sides. They fought for the American side. After the revolution, they settled in Pennsylvania, and Mal became a practitioner of Pennsylvania Dutch hex magic. Mm. And she was very well known for being able to lift and to cast curses. So talking about witchcraft in front of Rhoda Derry, who had this history, was really a surefire way to get her attention. Several weeks after this confrontation with Nancy Phoenix, Rhoda had a break with consensual reality. She started acting very strangely. Um, her parents had her committed to the Illinois State Hospital at Jacksonville. Um, <laughs> the heartbreaking part of this is that she she was having hallucinations. She swore that invisible witches were after her. Her mother, Rachel, would actually keep a pistol in her apron pocket and shoot at the witches in the cabin that Rhoda swore were flying around the cabin. Um, and she was a small town. Word travels fast. Nancy heard that Rhoda had suffered this mental breakdown, and she tried to get in to see Rhoda, and she, she tried to tell her, you're fine. There is no curse. I didn't mean it. But Rhoda would not have anything to do with her. She refused to see her, refused to even talk to her. Hmm. When Rhoda was in Jacksonville, she was there for two years. Released as incurable. We talked about that earlier in the show. Mm -hmm. um, Rhoda was probably put into the violent ward. She was locked in her room every night. Every morning, the attendants would find her wandering the grounds, 
And they'd say, mm. who let you out? And the answer was always the same. She would say, Nancy Phoenix let me out. Mm. That is just one more weirdness of Rhoda's story that nobody's ever been able to explain. Yeah, so She was released yeah, released from Jacksonville as incurable after a couple of years. Her family cared for her at home as long as they could, but in 1860, Rachel Berry, her mother, died. Mm. Her father could no longer care for her at home, so he had her committed to the Adams County Almshouse. Rhoda was a very violent patient. She um, would, if somebody came near her that had buttons on their shirt or their blouse, she would pick the buttons off their blouse and swallow them. She would eat anything off the floor. She would crawl around on the floor. She would, anything she found on the floor, a pin, a penny, a nail, would go straight into her mouth. It's called mm. pica. It's a, a, a compulsion to eat inappropriate objects. So for her own protection, the superintendent of the almshouse said, we need to lock her up. Now, there's something called a Utica crib, which was used for insane patients. The almshouse got a hold of one and put Rhoda in it. Uh, these cribs are usually designed for use no longer than overnight. Rhoda was kept in there for weeks and months at a time. It was lined with straw with a strategically cut hole in the bottom of it. In her despair at being locked up, she'd been abandoned by her family. Her mother had died. Her fiancé was dust in the wind. Rhoda started to self-abuse. She beat her front teeth in. She clawed her own eyes out. She was in this cage for decades. In 1902, Dr. Zeller became superintendent of the Peoria State Hospital. And in 1904, he started to go around to all the almshouses in the state. Now, I said Dr. Zeller felt that no patient was incurable. So how do you prove that? You go out and you find the worst of the worst. So that's what he did. He would go around to the almshouses and he would find the most wretched, abused, horrifying cases. And he would bring them to the, the safety of the Peoria State Hospital. He went to the Adams County Almshouse. He saw Rhoda. He took one look at her and he said, this patient is coming with me. And the superintendent of the almshouse didn't want to let Rhoda go. He figured the almshouse was going to be blamed for her condition. <laughs> go figure, right? Mm -hmm. So the train from Quincy got in very late to Bartonville that night. There was a washout on the tracks. There were about 60 patients being transferred from Adams County almshouse to the Peoria State Hospital. So it wasn't until about 1.30 in the morning that the nurses and the attendants got the call that the train had finally arrived at the station. So they went down to meet the, the boxcars and they escorted the patients off the boxcars. And they went into the boxcar. At one end of the car, there was this great big wicker laundry basket. And the attendants were like, I don't know what this is. Maybe it's patient clothes. I don't know. So they, they said, I guess this comes off the train too. So they pick up, each pick up one end of this big laundry basket. They hump it off the boxcar and they set it down none too gently on the concrete platform. And as they set it down, the lid pops open and the clothes part. And there sat Rhoda jabbering at people. Mm. 
she was being transported in the laundry basket. And that night, for the first time in 44 years, Rhoda Derry slept in a bed with clean white sheets. The nurses knew her excruciating history, and they doted on her. They treated her like a daughter. They waited on her hand and foot. <laughs> they made sure she lacked for nothing. She could no longer see, of course, but they set her in the car so that she could feel the sun on her face and listen to the birds singing and smell the flowers that she could no longer see. They took her to dances so that she could hear the music. She was with us for two years. Um, she probably contracted tuberculosis in the almshouse, but in the late summer of 1906, it became full-blown. And she was moved from her cottage to Dining Hall A, which still stands. And that's where she passed away, October 9th, 1906, the day before she would have turned 72. Mm-hmm. She is she is still on the hilltop. She is buried in Cemetery 1. And she makes her presence known on a regular basis. Our Rhoda is still with us. Awesome. So would you say that um, between uh, Dr. Zeller uh, used her story uh, to kind of uh, explain more of his philosophy and he used Rhoda's story to to kind of uh, help his, his endeavor of helping people uh, with his uh, compassion? Uh, he did, yeah. Yes, yes. Um, so would you say that right. he was not shy about that at all? <laughs> no, he wasn't. He, he said, was actually very proud said, of it. Look, <laughs> yeah, he said, "Look at what happens to people. I mean, they can survive being kept in the cage for 44 years, but mm-hmm. this happens. This happens to people in our state, and we can rescue these people. We they don't have to live in almshouses. They can live in a state hospital. They can live here that has long-term care." And, yeah, he was not shy about that at all. Rhoda was his poster child. <laughs> right. So between Rhoda's story and uh, Dr. Zeller's philosophy, would you say that that kind of marked the uh, the turning point of uh, the care of the, the mentally ill? It did. It did. With so many people becoming interested in Rhoda's story and so many people coming to the asylum to visit her, specifically to see the woman who was brought here in a basket um, and then staying to see the rest of the asylum and staying to absorb some of Dr. Zeller's philosophy. It really made a big difference in Shaw's mentally ill. And they said, wow, you know what? This is great. We don't have to lock our mentally ill away in almshouses. There is another place for them. There is a place where they can be treated with compassion and caring. So yeah, that really was a turning point. Okay. Um, now I hear you uh, that Peoria is is uh, facing uh, kind of like the end of the line. They're they're talking about setting the the wrecking ball after the the remainder portion, and you've also been kind of involved in the efforts to help save this. Uh, can you share a little bit more about that and what? What's going on? 
and kind of where it stands at the moment? I have been deeply involved in that. Okay, first of all, remember, it's not the entire state hospital that is in danger. Um, oh, okay. There, there, was, there were 63 buildings on the hilltop at the asylum site. 13 of those buildings are left. One of them is the Bowen building, the employees building. That is the one in, is it, that is in danger of being torn down. Uh, the reason is simple mismanagement of funds. Mm. Um, the owners of the building were doing tours through the building and collecting money for it, but they were not pouring the money back into the building as they should have been. So the roofs decayed. I mean, Illinois, <laughs> 40 years of Illinois winters will do that to a building if it's not being kept up. Um, mm-hmm. The roof, the, the windows were broken out. The roof started to get holes in it, and the rain would come in. The floors started to deteriorate very badly. Now, this is the real shame about the Bowen building situation, is that bones of the building are wonderful. The shell of the building, that limestone shell, is in fantastic condition. All it needs is a new roof, and the building would be right as rain. If they put a new roof on, took the floors out, and just left the shell of the building, it could be saved. But nobody's willing to do that. And it's just, there have been wrangling for years over the fate of the Bowen building. And there are, (laughs) it's very polarizing. There are people that want to see it come down because it's a disgrace and, oh, mentally ill people and the stigma and everything, and it's horrible. And there are people that feel equally strongly that it's the public face of the Peoria State Hospital which was such a beacon of light in the field of mental health care, and it's a wonderful place, and its memory should be preserved. And people hold both of these opinions with equal ferocity. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, it's really astounding. Um, The way things are right now, uh, there there was a, a, a... A fellow who got the contract to tear the building down, the idea was that there was still a lien on the building that was held by the city of Bartonville, Mm -hmm. and they were supposed to be getting money to pay back that lien. And the idea was to um, take the building down piece by piece and try to sell the materials and they started off by taking up the floorboards and they were going to sell the wood to the Amish. And a charity watchdog watchdog group stepped in and said, okay, you say you're selling these floorboards to the Amish. Where's the money and where is it going? And um, the owners couldn't account for it. So the demolition has thankfully been halted since then. So they, they figure out what's going where. The roof was supposed to have come off by June, and that has not happened. So I don't know. I'm not on the hilltop all the time like some people are, so I don't know exactly what the state of this building is. It's in limbo now more than ever. Um, But that's the heartbreaking thing is I I mentioned that if, if it had a new roof and they just took the floors out, the shell could be used for 
weddings, for musical performances, for, for conventions. And the guy who is in charge of demolishing this building knows that. And we've talked to him about that. He said, yes, I know. I know it's possible. But he said, there have been so many people that have said, oh, the Bowen building, I'm going to do this with it. I'm going to turn it into a bed and breakfast. I'm going to do, I'm going to turn it into a museum. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then it never happened. And he said, I gave my word that I would tear the building down and try to repurpose it. I'm not going to go back on my word. Everyone else has. Even though that would be to the betterment of the building. And it's so frustrating. I'm like, oh, man, one more time. Please, one more time. (laughs) Uh, the, The other thing that really makes me nervous, and other people nervous too, is that there are two kinds of limestone. There is limestone that you can take the chunk of limestone and slice it and use it for basing another building. And there is a type of limestone that if you try to do that, the entire chunk will shatter and just crumble into dust and you get no use out of it. Right. And we don't know what kind of limestone it is. Hmm. We don't know if we can use that limestone for facing other buildings. So right. that's what terrifies me, is it's just going to crumble into dust. Yeah. So 43 Years of Darkness, yet again, um, it's it's set to release on October 10th. How do we go about finding it so we can uh, purchase that? Well, take a look on Amazon. It is definitely going to be listed on Amazon. And I just made arrangements this past week. It will be available as a regular book. It'll be available as an ebook, and it is also going to be available as an audio book. Oh, awesome. Amazon, I know, I'm so excited. (laughs) Um, We haven't decided whether it's going to be me narrating it or somebody else. We haven't worked out those details yet, but it will be an audio book, and I just couldn't be prouder. So, yes, go to Amazon.com. It will be available there. It's available for pre-order. Um, also, you can visit uh, com. I will have all sorts of information in the weeks leading up to that. We are weeks away from it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yep, it's coming yeah, down to the wire. I know. The weeks and days leading up to that, I'm going to be celebrating because I've written several books of nonfiction, paranormal nonfiction, but this is by far the closest to my heart. And I'm deeply grateful to be able to share Moda's story with people. So please, visit Amazon, find this story, let it touch you, and thank you so much for reading. (laughs) Yes, and just to say, um, I have a copy of 44 Years in Darkness, and um, just out of the prologue alone, uh, you, you see right off, back the, the 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 love and the care and and the perspective of Dr. Zeller and it it will bring you right in and uh, I've had such a pleasure getting a chance to read it so far I'm only on chapter two and I'm looking forward to finishing up the rest of this book 
thank so, you, Adam. That's very kind yes, of you. <laughs> yes. So uh, definitely, I urge you that if you want a great read, if you're into history and, and everything, that uh, this is one book you want to get. Uh, I'm into history myself, and I am just loving every bit and just kind of hanging up um, word for word. I, I've even taken time to where I'd read a section of it, and then I would go and just kind of – I just want to – I get some more information and kind of look at things. So, uh, yeah, it is definitely a great book and a great read. And I am a picky reader myself. So, uh, <laughs> and I just so far have enjoyed this book. Uh, so, yes, uh, get on Amazon. Look for it for October 10th. It has been just an amazing show. And I just love hearing the story about this. Uh, Sylvia, it's been such a great pleasure to have you on this show to to share the story of Korea State Hospital and to show us a different perspective of uh, mental hospital hauntings. It's, it's just a real nice uh, reprieve from the, the standard uh, uh, American horror story uh, concept uh, about that lingers about the, this hospital. Yes. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. I had an absolute blast chatting with you, Adam. Uh-huh. Thank you for inviting me to be on the show. Oh, no problem. It's a pleasure to have you on. And also, um, just for your uh, for future reference for uh, audience, uh, Sylvia does have another book out um, that we're going to bring her on uh, at a later date to discuss, and That's it's right. called uh, Demon Haunting. Haunting Demons. Oh, Haunting Demons. Okay, so Haunting yes. Demons. Uh, so we're going to bring her on at a later date to discuss that. And uh, So be watching for details of when she'll be back on. Um, so yes, uh, Sylvia, once again, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for, for sharing this story. I uh, just also wanted to uh, remind uh, our listeners, September 23rd at 10 a.m., uh, I met a ghost with Don Wilson. Uh, Don is a uh, veteran daily newspaper editor uh, and author of the Civil War and Regional History titles. Uh, he recently published a book uh, that was uh, that has a serious look at the paranormal. Uh, it's called I Met a Ghost at Gettysburg, a journalist story into the paranormal. Uh, in the book, he shares his personal uh, experiences with the paranormal, and beyond that, he looks at the experiences as a veteran uh, journalist and discuss theories and science behind his encounters. So keep an eye out for that as well. Uh, This is another fantastic show you don't want to miss. We're also on Twitter, um, at paranormal underscore UNFP. Uh, You can stay up to date on our website. You can also find us on Facebook or just simply follow us right here on uh, at BTR at blogtalkradio.com slash paranormal unspoken. Uh, if you missed any of the show that you wanted to hear, uh, it's okay. Uh, you can subscribe to Paranormal Unspoken on iTunes, uh, Stitcher. Uh, we just recently uh, got on with Tuned In, uh, which is a, a major plus. Uh, so if you have any future ones or anything like that, you can download those from there. This is Adam Young, your host with Paranormal Unspoken, Seeking the Truth Together.
When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything! Fashion Emergency Hotline. Help! I got rid of all my clothes. Breathe and explain. During Fashion Week, everyone looked fantastic, so I decided I needed a new wardrobe. Well, strut to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yes, they have gorgeous floral tops and super on-trend pixie pants to turn your sidewalk into a catwalk. And right now, pixie pants are just $25. $25? Yep. Right now, pants and tops at Old Navy are 30 to 50% off. 30 to 50% off? Amazing. Thank you. Don't thank me. Thank Old Navy. Valid 915 to 923. Excludes denim and active pants. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.